Enterprise software, it is a big, big topic. Everybody seems to want to be an enterprise software company, and certainly if you work in an organization of any size at all, somebody is spending a lot of money on enterprise software. Today, on episode number 286 of CXO Talk, we are exploring the inner secret, secret, secrets of enterprise software. And by George, we have got two people who are qualified to talk about, and they will even share those secrets. Now, before I introduce them, I need to ask you a favor, which is right now, tell a friend to watch this show and be sure to subscribe on YouTube. Subscribe on YouTube. And as we talk, there is a tweet chat taking place right now on Twitter using the hashtag CXOTalk. So let me introduce our first esteemed enterprise software insider, and he is Dave Kellogg, who is the CEO of Host Analytics, and he is a very, very experienced enterprise software CEO. Dave Kellogg, how are you? And thanks, this is your first time here. Thanks for being here. Hi, I'm great, and uh, thanks for having me today. So Dave, uh, please tell us about Host Analytics and your CEO. And so what do you, what, what do you, what do you do there? <laughs> yeah, a lot of people wonder that. Uh, no. <laughs> uh, so uh, CEO of Host Analytics, we make cloud-based enterprise performance management software. Uh, in plain English, that means we make software for financial planning, budgeting, consolidation, reporting, and uh, we sell to the office of the CFO. Fantastic. And you've been... Uh, CEO of quite a number of software companies. So very briefly, briefly, just describe your background for us. Sure. The, the quick background started out in relational databases in the 80s, did object databases in the early 90s, spent 10 years of business objects uh, in the mid-90s to early 2000s, where I ran marketing, uh, ran, a object data, uh, ran a database company called MarkLogic, an XML database company, uh, for about six years, did a year at Salesforce, where I ran customer service apps, and I've been here at Host for uh, five years. Okay, great. And David Dobrin is our second esteemed guest. He's been an enterprise analyst for many years. And David, like Dave Kellogg and myself, are members of the Enterprise Irregulars group. Dave Dobrin, how are you? I'm so thrilled that you're here today. Oh, it's a beautiful day, and it's even better being on the show. Thank you so much, Michael. So, so Dave uh, Dobrin, uh, tell us also about your, your background and, and the things you're focused on. Well, I came to enterprise software in 1990 working for uh, an ERP company called QAD, and I got to know that product pretty well. So I went over to the analyst side and mostly evaluated ERP uh, firms. Uh, and then since then, I've simply been an analyst and evaluated software, and I pretty much tried to keep up with whatever was hot. So I would evaluate uh, CRM systems when they came in and so on and so forth. So I, th I think I... Uh, I, and then I've gone back and worked for the software companies as well. I have a fairly broad background in those things. I'd say ERP and supply chain are maybe the most important of those, but plenty of things. So, you, so you've seen it both from the industry analyst side and, of course, from the inside as well, the inside the software vendor perspective. Yes, absolutely. Great. Now, I think to begin our conversation, let me turn back to Dave Kellogg. And Dave, when we talk about enterprise software, tell us, what are we actually referring to? What do we mean? 
Sure. I mean, when I think of enterprise software, um, to keep it simple, it's software sold to businesses to, to run businesses. Um, and, and that differentiates it from consumer software, which is kind of built for people as individuals, uh, not for people working in corporations. Um, when I break down the enterprise software market, I always think of four primary buckets. I think of kind of data and data storage, so database-related technology is kind of the foundation. I think of middleware as the next layer that kind of ties everything together, uh, again, broadly defined. On top of that, I think of applications, whether it be CRM or ERP or EPM. Um, and on top of that, I would say analytics, a, a layer of tools that helps you gather insight from all the stuff below. So that, that's how I think about enterprise software. Now, there's, you know, enterprise software, I think, is really hard for people to understand. And part of that is because it's it's like this enterprise soup of alphabets and acronyms. And so maybe, Dave Dobrin, can you kind of navigate, explain how, just a little bit how the pieces fit together? So, so somebody who's who's a buyer, who's a user... Of, of enterprise software and not a developer will kind of get it? Well, that's a very interesting question. The answer is mostly that they don't fit together. They're, uh, they, corporations are very large entities. They have large numbers of departments and everybody wants software that serves them. If you're in HR, you want HR software. If you're in sales, you want sales software and so on and so forth. The simplest way of dividing up the alphabet soup is to ignore the alphabet soup and think about which parts of the company are served and say, okay, this is software for these guys. And that's, that's a simple way of thinking about it. So, so basically look at it from the point of view of some particular part of the business and just focus there. Absolutely. And those, and even focusing there, you might have 10 or 15 or 20 uh, different applications that are routinely used by some uh, some parts of that of that organization, starting with Excel, of course. And uh, the, the one of the things that people don't seem to realize about enterprise software is that uh, a medium-sized corporation will have will be running seven, eight hundred pieces of software, maybe more. I've seen as much as three thousand or four thousand. Um, so far more pieces of software than there are people, even people in IT, which is pretty frightening. And thus the amount of money that's actually spent on uh, enterprise software. Oh yeah, because every enterprise software wants at least a hundred a month. Well, uh, you know, if you, if your organization is, is, has 25 products, that's kind of a lot of money being spent on, on, uh, on hundred a month per person. So that's a very significant portion of your salary that's uh, going to a software that's supposedly supporting. Dave Kellogg, so but so you're you work for a a software company, and so maybe you have thoughts on this this economic aspect that Dave Dobrin, David Dobrin was just describing. Sure, I hear you. Uh, I mean, first, yeah, there, there's no question to the acronym soup problem. Uh, I, I think for many years, the success formula in enterprise software was to create a new category. Uh, right. And that that's kind of what proliferated to all these categories and subcategories and subcategories of subcategories. Um, and, and it made things very confusing. And, and I do think, uh, I like Dave David's idea to look at it more holistically and from the buyer's viewpoint. 
Uh, you know, in terms of the economics of it, uh, most of the software out there can prove a good ROI because um, it either helps automate. I mean, it, it, put it this way, if you can't demonstrate an ROI today, I think it's pretty hard to sell enterprise software. I don't think that was true 20 years ago. <laughs> I think people bought more on faith, uh, return on information and um, information for competitive advantage. But uh, I don't know. I, I feel like the leap of faith days are beyond us. Uh, I don't know if Dave agrees or disagrees. <laughs> I, I'm somewhat more doubtful, I must say. I mean, Michael has been very influential for me in this. Uh, he has quoted numbers like 50% of enterprise software sales fail. So really, if you want, we're talking about expectation and not about uh, actual return if everything works the way it's supposed to, uh, really your cost is twice what you what you're calculating your ROI on. And a lot of ROI numbers go away if you include expectation. So uh, also ROI numbers tend to be demonstrated before, not after. You can ask Dave Kellogg, what, what do you have that proves in your software that proves the ROI that you're claiming that you have uh, that monitors it uh, over time? Probably not too much. Not much demand for it. I mean, so so what would I say on this? So first, uh, I think the cloud has changed a lot of what you said because because there was yeah. the the, the pre cloud era, right, where where you would sell these giant deals, and the vendor didn't really care if the software got used, and we had shelfware. Um, I do think the cloud. You can call me an idealist, but 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 I think the cloud and the need to renew the customer means that the vendor actually cares. I mean, a smart vendor actually cares. Is the software being used? Is it demonstrating value? Because once a year, it's kind of going to be up for a vote. Um, so, so the fact that people, I mean, to me, the fact that people renew uh, is indicative of the fact that they continue to get value from the software. I'd also say deployment failures. I mean, again, but I mean, ERP, the, the massive deployments of, of you know the 90s and early 2000s, those are extremely high-risk propositions. I think cloud has kind of turned what used to be a heart transplant into knee surgery uh, in terms of uh, degree of difficulty. Well, knee surgery has only about a 50% success rate. So there, there you go. So we agree. I think you make good points, uh, but I think that they can also, uh, I can hear the software vendor in you. I don't really know, I don't really know about uh, whether cloud deployments are more successful. Certainly most cloud software is smaller, which means they do less. Well, okay. And that certainly increases the expectation that they'll work, but it decreases the ROI. But, but hang on, uh, unless you, you buy the proposition that I do, uh, which is that in the on-prem era, right, um, you bought a lot of functionality you didn't need. So, so the, to me, the basic cloud value prop is kind of 80% of the functionality at 20% of the total cost. And, and bear in mind, I'm not only a seller of software, I'm a user of it. I, I actually bought Salesforce and business objects in the early 2000s um, as a cloud buyer because the IT department wasn't serving me because marketing was kind of, you know, third in line or fifth in line on, on the IT stack. So I don't know. Um, I, I think the cloud has made a lot of this stuff better. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more, and I sure as heck all hope it's made things a lot a lot better. The the question is, what's the ROI? And I think it was unacceptably low in uh, 1998. Uh, in fact, we at my analyst firm we did a study which demonstrated conclusively that it was unacceptably low, and of course we su suppressed it since no one wanted to hear that. Uh, so, um, but the question is, is it acceptably high enough? 
now, that's where I think where the discussion is. And the answer is probably that neither of us have the data uh, very much, but it's 100%, it's, it's absolutely improved uh, with the cloud. I guess the, the question is when you're looking at ROI, software is a tool and it's very difficult to disassociate the software product from the business, the company, the process into which that software is embedded. And so when you talk about measuring the ROI of a software purchase, how, how do you even, how do you do that? Because wouldn't you have to disassociate the software from the context? I think it's extraordinarily difficult. Uh, and one of the reasons why uh, I, I, I express some doubt to David. I, I think you can claim lots of ROI. That's why I'm asking him, how can we show the ROI? It's really hard. Yeah, so the way, the way that I recommend customers do this is um, rather than try and get like an ROI number or an IRR number to say how much capital went in and how much cash came back, to try and get concrete business objectives, right? It used to take us 20 days to close the books. We'd like to close the books in 10. Uh, it used to take us six months to run the budgeting process process, we'd like to run it in three. Uh, we used to be able to update the budget in my world, you know, once a year. Now we want to update it uh, 12 times a year. Um, and and if, if a company places objectives and says, these are the things we want to do, and the software helps them achieve those objectives, uh, that, that's the way I'd look at it. But, but to, to technically speaking, to get a real ROI number, I've been a part of studies that do that. But, but boy, is it hard. Boy, yeah. Well, uh, Dave, I agree, but then it's not fair for you to to say, "Well, the ROI has improved." I mean, the the that is the correct way of doing it. Everyone should listen to you when you say that. Uh, you have objectives. The software it will enable the objectives. It's a step change in something important that you're doing in the company. That's a reason to buy software. But don't try to value it. It's going to be really hard. And recognize that the failure rate is high on any strategic objective, not, not necessarily because of the software, and that uh, the overall cost is high. And uh, many of the things that software companies claim uh, to be proof that they're really okay about all this, uh, renewal rates. Well, go think about your own renewal rates on things. Uh, uh, how many art charges do you have today on your on your credit card that are renewals of things you don't really want or need, but you don't have the mo uh, momentum to do it or would be too much chance to change? When was the last time you changed your bank account? Uh, despite the horrible service you're getting from your bank. Um, the, the fact that, that you renew is merely an indication of minimum acceptable performance. It's not an indication that you've achieved the strategic goals that you set out for yourself. Can I just jump in here for, for a second? At the end of the day, isn't the thing that matters what Dave Kellogg was just saying, which is proving, you know, okay, great. It'd be nice to prove a theoretical ROI, but if you're buying accounting software, isn't the thing that matters, how fast can you close your books? Well, the thing that matters with accounting software is how well can you run your company with the information you have? So to weigh in on this one too, uh, David, I think, look, there's people who say ROI and they mean IRR. 
uh, right. internal rate of return, one number. There's people who speak about it more broadly. I, I was kind of speaking even more broadly. I'm not a big fan of the study that gets the single number. I am a fan of getting measurable business objectives. The, the thing I challenge you on, though, you're on the borderline of saying that companies are irrational, right? that they're irrationally renewing this software that, that doesn't provide value. And, and I think you're right. There are times where like you want to move, but you weren't ready. So, I mean, I do believe there's a loose coupling between renewal and satisfaction. I don't think software vendors should measure satisfaction by renewal rates, right? Because some, sometimes right. unhappy customers renew, sometimes happy customers don't renew. Um, that was my uh, but, but I think if you look at the pattern over time, I mean, they're not going to keep renewing forever. Eventually, you do cancel that gym membership you never use, don't, don't you? Uh, I, I totally agree. Uh, and Mir- and uh, Dave, when you're being reasonable, of course, I agree with everything you say, as I always have. You know, um, It's when you start just doing the software, software knee-jerk reaction of, oh, oh, look at the ROI. Oh, look at the renewal rates. Sure, great. But you and I both know that it's more complicated than that. Yes, absolutely, 100%. They do eventually give up on the software, no question. But I'd say just as often they get sold, they fail, they do lots of other things. Uh, Renewal rates are very high, and the reasons for non-renewal very rarely include dissatisfaction. So who, who was the guy back in the 80s or 90s who kept saying you could see software everywhere but in the productivity statistics? Do you remember that guy? Yeah, although now that's changed. There's a difference between being sensible yeah. and therefore over re- and therefore reacting to unsensible things that are being said about software. Uh, I wouldn't be in this business if I weren't in, in if I didn't enjoy software and I didn't see a lot of potential for it. And the reason I went back and worked for a software company is I wanted them to do more. And I'm a little disappointed at how little software does and how little people demand of it. They could get a lot more and they could do a lot more. And I feel like I'm an advocate for that. But I'm not trying to say there is no productivity. Uh, The the economists are pretty universally sure that there is some productivity. However, it's in a long discussion. Michael wouldn't want me to get into it. Measurements of productivity don't necessarily work in a way that allows you to to estimate software uh, effects. Let's try a slightly different tack here. Okay. So... Uh, we, we were talking about cloud, and clearly cloud is one of the great innovations in enterprise software. And so as, as you both look across the, the enterprise software landscape, where do you see innovation? Historically, enterprise software has had this reputation for being hard to implement, ugly to see, difficult to use, Where's innovation happening right now with enterprise software? What's fascinating? Um, I'm disappointed at innovation right now. Uh, I think that uh, a lot of people are pretty pretty much sunsetting uh, any innovative work on their original products, mostly because the technical debt is so great on them that it's not possible to pay them off. And yet no one wants to start up a new ERP company. That would be too horrible. For words. So they're kind of in a holding action. Also, some of the obvious things that happened for the ten, last 10 years, like inventing a new category, uh, don't work anymore. So that doesn't work. Um, for me, the, the real interest is in data. You have all this data, no one, no one does anything with it. And uh, the people who seem to know what to do with it are data scientists, and they're horrible to talk to. Um, or 
and, and then everybody else just makes things up so far as I can tell. So you have the, it, it, it's like this small clan of people that know everything and can't communicate. Uh, ditto with machine learning. I, I am spending a lot of time looking at both of those th areas, uh, and, but, but trying to fend off the same kind of thoughtlessness and lack of perspicacity into what's real about them that, that I certainly ran into with ERP in 1996. So, so I, I think I'm a bit more sanguine here. I think, so first, I'm a big believer in the cloud, as partly because I started as a buyer of cloud software, as I mentioned earlier. Um, so I know exactly what it feels like to be, literally, I was told by my IT department, you could have lead management in Italy in four years. I'm like, that's great. <laughs> Tell the next CMO that <laughs> because they're going to come fire me because I'm not managing leads in Italy. So I, I got to find somebody to help me manage leads in Italy. And, and that's how we ended up buying Salesforce for actually for lead management. Um, so so I, I, that was my first introduction to the cloud as a buyer. Um, so I think the cloud, I mean, I think it's easy to forget how much time we used to spend buying servers and installing databases and worrying about Rackspace and um, and even just rolling out to individual computers and like uh, enterprise software in the 90s, that was really drudgery, right? Uh, so right. Uh, I, <laughs> I don't forget the pain. Um, you know, we still even have customers today who, who will pay $25,000 for a study on how to do an upgrade from version 11.1.2.1 to 11.1.3.1, and that upgrade will cost $150,000, right? Uh, and the business value of that is like zero. Right. Um, so so I, I think it's, I don't want to forget how much the cloud has done for us in terms of, in some ways, relieve, letting us worry about other things, right? Like we don't have to think about that anymore. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I, I totally agree, David. Uh, I frankly, to me, the thought that you would ever buy anything that isn't cloud-based is kind of there. There better be some damn good reason for it. The cloud offers obvious advantages. I think that, the, as far as I'm concerned, the world has just moved there, and therefore, when Michael's asking about innovation, I don't think of cloud as an innovation anymore. It's just the standard. But yeah, it's all about time frame to me. I mean, I, I don't think it's a recent innovation, but I think enterprise software moves somewhat glacially. Like, I mean, last time I looked at the numbers, even Salesforce automation was still 50% on-prem, maybe 40% on-prem. I mean, to think about that, you know, what Salesforce was founded what 18 years ago, uh, and, and the market's still half on-prem, half cloud. That, that's why I, I still think of cloud as kind of both the past and the future, because a lot of people haven't gone there yet. Uh, fair enough, Dave. Yeah. Absolutely, 100%. One other one I think is innovation, which we'll see how you weigh in on this one, is, you know, I remember when I went to college, I mean, there were always been great algorithms, but, but we never had the data to run them against. And, and I feel like in the last five, 10 years, we actually have great- A lot of data. Yeah, we have data that we can go analyze. That's, that's where the innovation is. That's yeah. where the innovation is. That's in the data. When I talk with uh, CIOs and CMOs, the really smart ones, I mean, they're all really smart, but, this, but, but really the ones who, are, who, who stand out, they, they're talking about, okay, how do we use data? How do we understand our business? How do we, how do we figure out what, how do we use the data that we're collecting that we have of which, you know, 70% of it is lying fallow in our systems without benefiting us. That's where the magic is. I agree. That's where the magic is, but it's really hard. 
it's it's very hard to to, to wrangle data. Every step of data management is as poorly sor- served today as enterprise software was by COBOL. I'm sorry if I'm ex- if Dave is going to wince again because I'm exaggerating, <laughs> but. <laughs> You know, every bit of, of data analysis is just super hard and for no particular reason. So uh, two, two thoughts on that. One, uh, I've always said that uh, the next generation will see SQL the way we see COBOL. I don't think that raises eyebrows anymore. It used to. Um, uh, but I mean, it's a slightly different tack on data. But one of the more interesting conversations I had with a data scientist the other day was uh, she was actually trying to pick a new job. Um, and normally when, when somebody's trying to pick a place to work, I think about the company and I'm like, well, tell me about the companies and who are the investors. And, and of course she was basing her selection on the data set. Right. <laughs> to her, it was all about what data will I have that I'll be able to analyze. Uh, and it's just an interesting way to look at it. Well, I, I was working on a bunch of innovation projects for a, comp- a software company that shall not be named. And uh, we were looking at what you could do with ultra fast databases. And I talked to a guy who's around, lives around the corner from me, teaches in the business school, and he had come up with a very, very interesting study of retail operations. And I looked at the study and I said, well, gee, what, you know, what can we do with it and so on? It turns out that 98% of the time that he spent on that study was on data wrangling. Is on getting the data, massaging it, making sure it was okay, and so on and so forth. Then he runs Stata, and boom, he has the answer, and it's brilliant. You know, serve that. That's what you need. Yeah. So, so I mean, to me, we've gone from what uh, I'm going to get the soundbite wrong, but a uh, uh, famine to 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 uh, excess. We have too much, right? There's too many data sources. I remember when I worked at Salesforce, I go to meetings, and we were in kind of tableau hell because everybody had absolutely beautiful charts, but they're all from different data sources, and, and nothing actually compared. So it was right. impossible to analyze. Um, I, I do think that's a big problem. I do think companies are, are working on solving that problem. Um, you know, uh, I'm on the board of one company, just I won't mention the name, but, but, but they're trying to use machine learning to look at where other people found answers and then kind of, you know, follow the crowd at lunchtime if you don't know where the canteen is. Uh, and, and I think it's an interesting approach uh, mm-hmm. because the, the, I do think the approach yeah. that hasn't worked is a single catalog, a single metadata model, a single data warehouse. I mean, we've died on that hill way, way too many times. No, it's nonsense. I mean, why should it work? Uh, you know, I mean, the, the the directions here are in a more real-time data analysis. If you have the same data and you can do it faster, that helps. And uh, the other is to, uh, is to have data sets or people call them data lakes or whatever that enable you to wrangle the correct data for the question that you're asking and ask that question in a way that allows you to get a reasonable and true answer in a reasonable amount of time. Right now, it's basically just not possible. I, I can tell you story after story uh, about that. Let's shift gears slightly. There's a question from Twitter, and Zachary Jeans makes a comment, an interesting comment. He says, Simon Sinek says, people don't buy what you do, they buy why you do it. And that proves what you believe. So his question is, does this hold true for enterprise software purposes, purchases? And I'll broaden that and extend it to say, the, does 
enterprise software, enterprise software, do enterprise software companies have a soul? I think they put it this way. I think they're born with a soul. Uh, I think when, when they're startups, they clearly have a soul because somebody started the company for a reason. And that reason is typically that they're looking at how people solve the problem and said, I know a better way to solve it. Um, I mean, the vast majority of enterprise software companies I know of are started in that way. Um, so I think they're born with a soul. I like the soundbite that, that they buy why you do it. Um, uh, I, I like it because it means there's a, there's an underlying purpose. Um, and I'll just speak for myself at my current job. I think I'm a huge fan of planning. I think companies don't plan much about the future as much as they should. I don't think they plan very well. Um, what's the Eisenhower quote? Uh, but planning is indispensable, uh, but uh, I'm going to mix it up. Um, I'll, I'll come back to it in a minute. But, but there's lots of quotes on planning, uh, but that, you know, that no plan ever survives the first shot of battle, right? Which is the, the need for continuous planning. Um, so at least personally, I've always felt a mission about what I do. Um, and I think most enterprise software entrepreneurs do as well, because uh, it, it's too much work, <laughs> frankly, um, if you don't have an underlying purpose. Well, I, I think that part of the, his question is really gets the heart of um, the matter, which is really the integrity of the companies that you're dealing with. Um, if you don't deal with a company that has integrity, uh, you shouldn't deal with them. Um, and I set a pretty high standard for integrity. Uh, so I, I think that why you do it, at least when you say why you're doing it, it should have some relation to the truth. Uh, that's that's the first thing with buying enterprise software. Uh, the second is um, why you do it with a large enterprise software company often has very little to do with what's actually being done. People in marketing, people in sales, people even in executive management have very little idea of what's being built or why it's being built or how it's being built. So you have to factor that into the into account as well. So, so I think uh, if I could weigh back on that one first, I remember to quote, it was plans, uh, plans can be useless, but planning is indispensable, uh, which, which is a quote I love. Um, on the, I think you make a really good point, uh, David, on the whole integrity thing, because I, I actually think there's two types of startups. I, I think there are runs run by people, kind of HP style. They see a technical problem. They want to solve it. And I think there's actually, because you can make a lot of money doing this, there's kind of profiteers and charlatans who, who are maybe less driven by a vision and just trying to slap something together, raise a lot of venture capital and sell it to someone else. Um, and I don't mean to sound jaded, but, but at least, you know, when I look at a startup, I can kind of tell you which bucket I think it falls into. And I think more buyers should, uh, should make that the first cut. Uh, honestly, and be there would make their lives a lot easier. You know, also just frankly, the integrity of a large company is much, much harder to establish, maintain, and maintain. Uh, just as the culture is harder to establish and maintain, so you have to factor that into account. So this notion of uh, profiteers and charlatans. I like that as far as uh, as far as sound bites go. I like that one a lot. I have to remember <laughs> that one. <laughs> I have to add that in my little notebook of uh, sound bites, profiteers and charlatans. But anyway, I think it gets to the heart of customer satisfaction and why is customer satisfaction so hard for enterprise software companies to achieve? And maybe I should direct that to Dave Kellogg as since you're CEO of a software company. Right. Sure. Uh, so why is it hard? I mean, first, there's a number of reasons. Um, 
you know, first, corporations are not people; they're 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 groups of people, right? So, so you have a bunch of people around the diff- the table with different opinions. They all want different things from the software. Oftentimes, they're not really in agreement either on how processes should work if you're trying to automate process uh, or on what the goals of the project are. So, one um, one of the real complexifying factors in enterprise software is knowing how to work with and understand enterprises, uh, and that's a big part of it. Um, I think customer satisfaction is also hard because people change jobs. So, so you may start a project with one CFO uh, and, uh, you know, two years in, there's a new CFO and he, he or she has a totally different set of objectives. Um, so, so you're kind of shooting at a moving target. Um, one of the funnier metrics I look at is kind of the lifetime of the software versus the lifetime of the executive who buys it, <laughs> right? What's the mean lifetime of a CIO? It's like three years. Um, some of these systems last 10. Uh, so, so you're going Ready. to go through... Yep. Yep. Or 20. Yeah, your point. Um, I think the other thing that's hard about uh, customer satisfaction is these are hard problems, right? I mean, they're, they're, they are sometimes quite mundane problems, right? ERP to me is a relatively mundane field, but it's very important and it's very hard. Um, so I, I think those things contribute to, uh, to, to, to to making customer satisfaction difficult. And uh, Dave Dobrin, from, from your perspective, you're you're looking at many different software companies. What are the attributes of software companies who are able to achieve high customer satisfaction and overcome some of the challenges that Dave Kellogg was just describing? High customer satisfaction, I think, is a very rare commodity, uh, as for the, all the reasons that Dave said. Um, I think there are companies that that somehow are moved to becoming the standard, of which Salesforce is perhaps the most obvious example. And there it is a combination of a better technical idea, utterly brilliant marketing, very, very good management of the company. I could go on and on, except that all my Salesforce friends would be embarrassed, only they can't be because they work for Salesforce. Um, they, I think that they, the biggest single reasonable reason for being for lack of customer satisfaction is underbuilt software. I mean, Dave is right. It's really hard to build the software correctly, but it's also really easy to be lazy about it. I always make jokes about the the software guy who went home at five on Friday, and that's why the software works that way. But if you've ever actually worked in a software company, you know that's pretty much the truth. Uh, less of that and more uh, feedback from the customer, more understanding of what's actually going on in the customer. All of those things could improve uh, customer satisfaction a lot. Why is the technology so difficult? I mean, software companies, enterprise software companies today uh, have got the budgets, many of them have the budgets to hire literally the best and the brightest. They pay enormous amounts of money. They have, you know, the smartest people designing the technology. And so when you say that the technology is not right, what the hell are you talking about? (laughs) Well, Dave would know better than I would. But uh, uh, the answer is that uh, smart people aren't necessarily knowledgeable people. One of my favorite uh, biases is the Dunning-Kruger effect, where the person, the expert, thinks that they know a lot more than their expertise really allows them to make comments about. And Dunning-Kruger is rife in all software companies, especially on the development side. So you get these guys and they they know what they're doing and who's, who cares? What ah, yes, the Dunning-Kruger effect. How could I have forgotten? So, but so Dave Kellogg, I mean, how do you manage the technical architecture and how do you manage to avoid technical debt uh, 
along the way? Because I'm assuming that the technical debt problem that Dave Dobrin brought up earlier has to be one of the one of the issues here too. So I think so. So look, uh, the only way to avoid technical debt is is to not build software, right? Uh, <laughs> if, if as soon as you sit down and write code, you, you're going to get a certain amount of debt in the software. Um, uh, I, I will echo David's praises for Salesforce. One of the things I learned at Salesforce um, was what they call a trust release, and I think it's one of the best ideas in enterprise software, uh, which is every n releases three, four, five. Um, the, the the top brass would say we're going to do a trust release, and what a trust release means is is all the product managers you go to that side of the room. We're not going to listen to you for one release, and the architects are going to drive the requirements for this release. And if you can convince an architect that a new feature actually retires debt, then you might get lucky and get a twofer. <laughs> but but what's going to drive this release is cleanup because we know that kind of an occupational hazard of being in the software business is you're always pressured for new, 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 and, and you never go clean up. And, and uh, that's the way we manage it here. I think it was one of the best ideas I've seen in 25 years in software. Fabulous idea. Fabulous. Uh, I mean, and the whole allocation of uh, uh, innovation budgets at software companies is all screwed up. Uh, it's driven by uh, large companies wanting to, to, to retire technical debt that affects them. It's driven by some marketing idea that's usually nonsense. Um, it's driven by job retention ideas in development. Uh, the amount the amount of money actually spent properly is uh, not great. And uh, I think Dave's mechanism for getting a little bit more of the money to be spent properly, whatever that means, uh, is a really good one. So we've only got a few minutes left. This time has been flying by. And I think we we need to talk about maintenance and support. Uh, and, and maybe Dave Dobrin, uh, you can just set the frame for us. And we're going to have to do this pretty quickly because we're going to run out of time. Okay. So right now, maintenance, uh, any large company, maintenance and support is supporting the company. So you you pay a dollar in support. Any large software company. I'm sorry for interrupting. Any large company. 80% of the revenue is coming from maintenance and support right now, maybe more. Uh, so that means that every dollar you spend, uh, the what they spend 50% in SGNA, $50 of your maintenance is going to their SGNA or for 50 40 cents is going to SGNA. Uh, 30 cents is going to this, 20 cents is going to that. So almost none of the money that you're spending on maintenance, cloud or uh or, or on premise is really going for maintenance. What are you getting for it? Insurance, sort of. Uh so I think the first thing is to be realistic about that. Dave Kellogg, any thoughts on on this maintenance and support issue? And sure. I, I mean, look, from the vendor perspective, uh, it's all about switching costs, right? Uh, and, and it didn't, it actually took the software industry quite some time. In my opinion, I, I credit Ray Lane at Oracle for being the first guy to go, hey, wait a minute, this 22% annuity is worth something. Um, and Because prior to that, it was really viewed as kind of a scrap heap. People would throw the contracts in the heap and you'd literally have customers not paying their support, getting support from the call center. Um, so I think they, they discovered that there was a lot of value in the annuity and they try and drive that up. Um, obviously, uh, David's point is taken to heart. The, the way I try to solve that problem, I mean, my advice to buyers is find out what the company's strategy is because he's right. The average software company spends maybe 20, 25% of revenue on R&D, maybe, sometimes 15, once in a while, 40. But, but it's not a huge chunk of revenue. And if you know where they're going, that's what they're going to be investing in. 
Um, and a lot of times companies are not going to place where the customer is because uh, there's a lot of bright, shiny object, right, where they're chasing some vision and they're going to be investing in something that you don't really care about. So it doesn't solve the problem entirely, but at least trying to get a real strategy statement um, and understanding what their typical customer looks like because all vendors are pulled by their customers. If you look at those two things, it's going to help you figure out where the R&D money really goes. Yeah, the, the other thing to do is to develop an exit strategy, uh, you know, so that you, you, you assume that after a while it's going to fit you less and less well. Figure out what you're going to do with that money and, and try to do something else. Don't plan on using it forever. But of course, that's that's sort of like saying, <laughs> eat less fat and get drunk less often. You know, no one's going to listen when you say. So, advice for buyers then is to look at where the software vendor is investing their R and D, in order to figure out, is, are those investments really going to be beneficial for useful for for my business. Yeah, that's my advice. I mean, look, a lot of software vendors, particularly the earlier stage ones, you know, their current product is step one in a broader vision. And if you buy into that broader vision, great, because um, that's where the money is going to be spent. But if you don't, if you're like, no, I actually just really like what you do. Uh, I don't see what you do as a stepping stone to five other things like maybe your investors do. Um, I'd worry that the money you're giving them is not going to be spent on enhancing the core product you bought. Um, and, and, you know, I'll pick a concrete example. If you look at Zendesk, I think they've done a good job staying focused on support. There's an argument they could go focus on a bunch of other industries, um, but they haven't done that. And, and if you're, if you're, you know, if you're a customer, I think they're reinvesting the money you're giving them in better support. But, but this is from the point of view of, of a CIO or an IT department, for example, that's buying enterprise software. What a pain in the butt you've just described, because it means that instead of simply evaluating the software, I need to evaluate the company and the trajectory of the company. I just want to buy, I just want to buy software. I'm not investing in their business. I'm not a VC. So what's going to do? My belief is CIOs today, they're savvy. They evaluate companies too. I mean, I think, well, Michael, they've been doing it for a long time. I mean, I know lots and lots of smart CIOs that, that they know they're not just buying a piece of software, right? What's the, you don't buy enterprise software, you inject it into your bloodstream, right? <laughs> so, so, so I want to know what I'm buying, right? Uh, and I want to understand the company. But I think there are some other strategies that you could use long-term. One, one is to team up honestly with all of your competition in your industry and share information about the software, although that, I'm sure, violates some contract that you have with one of the vendors, um, because as a group, you have more power. And very often, uh, if you ask for something that they that they that all of you want, that's you're more likely to get it. Uh, also, you're likely to make fewer mistakes at the beginning, uh, because if every, if other people have had experience with these things, you can uh, uh, you can help fix it. So that would be a one thing that you could do. Okay, as we finish up, what final advice do you have to buyers of enterprise? software. And Dave Kellogg, I'll ask you, because again, you're CEO of a software company. 
Yeah, I mean, my, my primary advice at this point is just to, 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 if you haven't done it already, break the sweet mentality of the, the 90s and the early 2000s. You don't need to buy everything from one vendor who sells everything. Uh, it's 2018. I think you keep all your suppliers on their toes by working with lots of companies as opposed to one strategic vendor who you marry. Um, and you can get best of breed cloud services, and it's not that hard to tie them together. So I, I would say... Um, that would be my advice. Look, look hard at the cloud and, and try to break the mentality of uh, sweetism or, or from a functional level, what I call taking one for the team, which is you know, buying software you don't want because it's the corporate standard. Uh, I don't think you have to do that anymore. Uh, and can I just jump in, Michael, and just say he's completely right. You're, you're, the value you're getting from the smaller early stage companies is so much greater than the value you get from some following large company that's developing the same software four years later and is charging you way more for it, that it overwhelms any connection costs. There's no reason for this uh, sweet mentality anymore. It's it's dead. It's over. And what about, but just to play devil's advocate with you guys, um, what about software companies who provide suites and the argument that they would make is that you've got one, th as far as the vendor goes, you've got one throat to choke. You've got data shared across the applications. You've got consistent user interface. Basically, the the arguments for the suite. So what's what's the uh, the cliche in finance? If if you owe the bank a uh, million dollars, it's your problem. If you owe the bank a hundred million, it's their problem. Um, it, it's same with suites, right? If you've committed strategically and you're in tens, hundreds of millions with a major vendor, I actually think you've given away power. Right. Um, whereas if you keep yourself diversified across vendors, I think you keep more leverage. So, so uh, that's my view. It didn't. didn't. Uh, I, I think first of all, it's a there. The I could take each of your points one by one, but oh, let me just take the one where it says uh, you know all the data is shared, et cetera, et cetera. Look at either of the two major enterprise software companies. They have bought innumerable other companies and they don't integrate them. Actually, all three of the majors, they don't integrate them. There's a sort of pseudo pretense integration, but it isn't, it isn't at all real. Uh, and it doesn't do anything for you. So I don't know whether where that argument went. As far as one throat to choke is concerned, have you ever tried to choke an ogre? You can't even get your damn mouth and your hands around its neck. Okay. And on and on that note, have you ever tried to choke an ogre? That is another one that is going into my the permanent record of my sound bites to use in the future. Um, but you know, unfortunately, all good things have to come to a close, and this we're we've run out of time. What a very very fast forty five minutes it's been. So I want to say a, a thank you to. Dave Kellogg, who is the CEO of Host Analytics. And Dave, thanks so much. And I hope you'll come back and do this another time. Yeah, thanks for having me. And I want to say an equally heartfelt thanks to David Dobrin, who is a long, longtime industry analyst in the enterprise software business. Dave Dobrin, thank you for being here. And I hope you'll come back again as well. You're welcome. Thank you. My, it was my pleasure. Everybody, you have been watching episode number 286 of CXO Talk. Thanks so much, everybody. Have a great day. And don't forget to subscribe on YouTube. Oh, and tell a friend also. Do that. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye.